You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Exploration by sea has always offered a special daring. A man on foot can turn around if his journey goes amiss. But for a ship, when something goes wrong, there is often no turning back. There is an immense reward in a sea voyage, but also an immense risk. But in the beginning, even as ships explored the seas, they rarely ventured out of sight of land. The coast offered an anchor, a guide that men could follow. But sail out of sight of land and into the unknown, and things change. The open sea, the ocean, tested the ship itself. The waves grew larger and the winds deadlier. Ships built to sail on rivers and along coasts could not withstand such voyages. And the open sea presented the simple challenge of finding a destination. Strike out into the unknown waters, and there is no promise that you'll find somewhere to land before starvation or malnutrition or scurvy or the elements consume you. It's a dangerous game. It's what makes the voyages of men like Columbus and Magellan so extraordinary. They sail into a great expanse of nothingness, trusting to fate that they will find landfall before the ocean swallows up their ships. As I said, it is a dangerous game. It is why we have to acknowledge the boldness and skill of the early Norse explorers. These Northmen, or Vikings, sailed west into the cold and uncharted seas in ships predating Columbus and Magellan by 700 years. It was an amazing achievement. In this episode of Explorers, we are going to take a look at the greatest of the Viking explorers, the father and son duo of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. Before we start, let's take a moment to talk about the sources for the podcast. The Norse are difficult people to chronicle in many ways. Obviously, a thousand plus years obscures many truths. But just as important was the fact that the Norse just didn't really write about themselves or their world. Yes, they used runic symbols, but those were often clunky, and they were reserved for such things as monuments and gravestones. Instead, the Vikings relied on a strong oral tradition, stories and legends that would be passed down verbally from generation to generation. The most famous of these stories are the Viking sagas, or Icelandic sagas, which recount the famous people and deeds of the Vikings from the 9th through 11th centuries. We are going to draw a lot of information for our podcast from these stories, but we have to remember that these sagas had been passed down orally for hundreds of years before finally being written down in the 13th and 14th centuries. So their accuracy is always questionable. They are often a mix of truth and myth, and we just have to figure out what is the truth and what is the myth. Because of this lack of written text from the Norse themselves, much of the original source material about them has come actually from foreigners, people who had visited Scandinavia or come in contact with Viking traders or warriors during this classic Viking age. But these being foreigners, it is natural that their accounts will have their own biases and inaccuracies. Thankfully, time cannot always erase the past, 
and thus the history of the Vikings can also come from the ruins and artifacts that have been uncovered over the past 200 years. It all makes, for at times, a lot of speculation, but we will piece together many of these sources and come up with the story of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. Next thing, regarding dates and pronunciations. Many of the dates quoted are rough, so if I say something happened on such and such a date, know that it's a basic guess by historians. Just know that Eric the Red and his son Leif lived in the latter half of the 900s and into the early 1000s. Finally, as with every podcast I do, please note that my pronunciation of names and places is always suspect. Forgive me if I butcher something. Also, the Scandinavian pronunciation is often different in English. Example, one of the stars of our podcast is named Leif, spelled L-E-I-F. In America, it would usually be pronounced leaf, like the leaf on a tree. But in most other places, it is pronounced leaf. I'm going to go with the latter for the podcast, but know that I'll try and keep it consistent throughout our tale. Okay, let's talk Vikings. When we hear the word Vikings, we often conjure up images of battle-axe-wielding Northmen sacking towns and monasteries in England and Ireland and Europe. Just the word Viking supposedly sent shivers down the spines of Europeans for centuries. A Celtic monk famously wrote, From the fury of the Northmen, O Lord, deliver us. But for all their reputation as warriors and conquerors, the Vikings were also one of the most daring and innovative explorers in history. Their ships sailed throughout Europe and the Mediterranean, reaching as far as the Middle East, a journey that is more than 4,000 miles. The Viking Age is often seen to have begun in the late 790s, when the Norse made their first appearance on the international stage with a series of attacks on the Christian monasteries of England and Ireland. And for the next several centuries, Viking longships would head south, raiding and trading as they went. It should be noted that the Vikings were prolific traders. Yes, they were raiders and conquerors, but they traded as often as they fought. Now, the traditional people we think of as Vikings came from three regions, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Sweden and Denmark were considered the more prosperous of the three regions. The land in both was considered better for farming and more plentiful. The Swedish Vikings were famed for their excursions and eventual settlement of areas in what is now Russia and the Ukraine. The Danish Vikings came from a land of islands, and they were natural shipbuilders and traders. Also, the smaller area that they lived in allowed them to concentrate power more effectively than a place such as Norway. And their location made for a more mild climate, plus easy access to goods and innovations from the south. And that leaves us with the Vikings of Norway, and it is here that our story emerges. As noted, Norway was the least prosperous of the Viking lands. It is dominated by mountains with a massive coastline. In the north, the people were semi-nomadic, following the reindeer herds for survival. In the south and central regions, people subsisted on fishing and hunting and farming. And it is important to know that the Vikings, despite their reputations as raiders and fighters, were mostly farmers. But being a land of mountains, good farmland was limited. To own land meant prosperity and stature, as well as survival in Viking society. This, as well as other factors, would make the Norwegian Vikings a little bit more restless and perhaps a little bit more reckless. Throughout the 800s, Viking ships sailed from Norway and Denmark to raid England and Ireland and France. But things began to change during this time as well. The Vikings gradually saw that these regions were not just places to attack, but really nice places to settle. Dublin, Ireland, founded by the Vikings. Normandy and France, a Viking kingdom. You get the idea. The Vikings founded settlements and ruled great swaths of land throughout England and Scotland and Ireland and France, and they began to blend with the native populations. The land that was so scarce and valuable in Norway was available for the taking in other realms. 
In 872, Harald Fairhair became king of Norway. His reign, which would last almost 60 years, marked a consolidation of power in much of the region. Many chieftains were forced out or lost properties and power and wealth, and some came to resent Harald's authoritative rule. As Harald's power grew, the ability for men to gain wealth and influence waned, and so they looked elsewhere. As noted, some went to Ireland and England and France, and even further south, but others would head west, into the ocean. If you go west from Norway, as well as north from England, you will find two groups of islands. The first are the Shetland Islands, about 50 miles north of Scotland. The Vikings colonized the Shetlands in the 8th and 9th centuries, displacing whatever peoples were there, likely Celts from Scotland or Ireland. About 200 miles northwest of the Shetlands are a second group of islands, the Faroes. The Norse arrived there around 800, displacing a small native population. As you can imagine, these islands were small and rugged, and the inhabitants would always struggle to survive. These are not great lands, but they were stepping stones to the west. And the next step in this chain of movement was Iceland, which is about 300 miles northwest of the Faroes. If you want to get a feel for all these locations, check out explorerspodcast.com. I put up some maps so you can get an idea. Iceland was first settled by the Norse in 874. It was not a great place to live at this time, but the land was cheap and a man could be free. Up to 10 to 20,000 Scandinavians, mostly from Norway or from Viking settlements in the British Isles, headed to this new land. Unfortunately, the livable land in Iceland just isn't that big, and within about 50 years, all the decent land would be claimed for farming and grazing. But that didn't stop men and women from heading west in search of a new life, and that is where our tale begins. In 960, a Viking named Thorvald Asvaldsson was exiled from Norway for the crime of manslaughter. Perhaps Thorvald had killed someone in a blood feud, we just don't know. Exile was a common punishment for such a crime. Why Thorvald elected to head to Iceland for his exile, it's unclear. Perhaps it was his only choice. Otherwise, he may have gone to Ireland or England, where there were significant Viking colonies. But Iceland it was. At the time, Iceland had been settled for less than a century by the Scandinavians. But when Thorvald Asvaldsson arrived, he would have found a land that was mostly devoid of timber, as the forests, which at one point had covered roughly 25% of the island, had been cut down for homes and ships and fuel. Year after year, planting crops was threatening the soil quality, and overgrazing of available pasture by goats and sheep and cattle was also becoming an issue. Add in a growing population, and you had a segment of people who would, sooner or later, be looking for a better life, and wondering if what was over the horizon held a more promising future. When Thorvald would come to Iceland, he would bring with him a son, Eric Thorvaldsen, better known today as Eric the Red. Thorvald and his family would settle in the northwest region of Ireland, and he would live there until his death in 980. His son Eric had been born in the Rogaland district of Norway in 950. He was called the Red supposedly because of his great red beard, but some speculate it was because of his fiery temper, or maybe it was just a little bit of both. Anyhow, Eric married a woman named Theohild and settled into life as a farmer in the northwest region of Iceland. Perhaps he had inherited his father's estates, and we just don't know that. The couple would have three sons, Leif, Thorvald, and Thorstein. There would also be a daughter, Freydis. Some sources indicate she had been birthed by Theohild, while others say she had been born to another woman before Eric's marriage. Eric seems to have become a man of standing at this time, but in 980, he would find himself in a situation not dissimilar to what had befallen his father 20 years earlier. Several of Eric's thralls, which is what the Vikings called slaves, would accidentally trigger an avalanche on the property of a neighboring farm, 
destroying the house of a man named Valjoff. A kinsman of Valjoff, Eyolf the Fowl, which I love that name by the way, Eyolf the Fowl killed the slaves for what they had done. Eric retaliated by killing Eyolf. The result was that Eric was either banished from the area or he elected to leave voluntarily. He moved his family to the island of Oxney, which is in a fjord in the west of Iceland. The killing, however, was not done. Just two years later, in 982, Eric loaned a fellow settler some ornamental wooden beams his father had brought from Norway, beams which the sagas say had mystical properties. I have also read that Eric loaned the man, whose name was Thorgast, tools, but most stories go with the mystical wooden beams, and that's a lot more interesting, so we'll stick with that. When Eric asked for them back, Thorgast refused to return them, and Eric confronted the man, and a fight ensued. Eric would kill two of Thorgast's sons in the melee, as well as several other men. The result? Exile. Eric would be banished from Iceland for three years for his crimes. So, with three years to kill, Eric decided to look west. There had been many stories about lands to the west, and Eric, looking to find himself some fame and make some cash, decided to investigate. That there were lands to the west was not unknown to the Icelanders. As early as 900, Viking ships blown off course had returned telling the story of a massive, inhospitable, ice-packed landmass to the west. In fact, on a clear day, it is said you can glimpse Greenland, which is about 700 miles away from the top of Iceland's highest peak. The danger in sailing west was not just the distance, but it was also the sea itself. Because between Iceland and Greenland is what we call the Denmark Strait today. Here you have 700 plus miles of water, packed with ice and icebergs, often shrouded in fog and plagued by storms, a treacherous and lethal combination that would test any man. And that is in the summer. In the winter, the water will just freeze, and any ship caught in it would be doomed. It should be noted that in 778, a man named Snebjorn Gady, reportedly an outlaw, just like Eric the Red, sailed to Greenland with a group of adventurers, the first people to willingly do so. The result was a disaster. The men would turn on each other in the only winter they spent there. They would murder Snebjorn and many others. Only a handful of them would ever return. A saga was written about Snebjorn's journey, but it has been lost. So, Eric headed west, but he seems to have been better prepared than our late Snebjorn. He would successfully navigate the ocean and come into contact with the eastern coast of Greenland, most of which is unsuitable for human habitation. I want to take a moment to talk about the Viking ships used for these explorations. When we hear the word Viking, we think of the famed longships, or dragon ship. The ships sailed from Scandinavia to England and Ireland and France, filled with armed men looking to loot and pillage. But the ships that Eric and Leif would sail were different than the infamous longships. The longship was fine for short distances, but it was not designed for longer voyages on the open sea. For that, the Vikings used a cargo ship called a nar. The Nar was not dissimilar from the longship, but it was usually shorter and wider and deeper. And while the longships often employed oars, the Nar almost strictly used a sail. The result was a vessel that could carry more cargo than a longship and could withstand rougher weather and protect the occupants much better from the elements. I posted a picture of a Nar on explorerspodcast.com if you are interested in seeing what one looks like. So, back to the story. Eric had found the east coast of Greenland. He would follow the coastline south and eventually round the southernmost tip of the island, arriving at a fjord that is known as Tunoliafik. Eric saw a future here. There were no trees in Greenland, but on the southwestern side of the island, the weather was milder and the land was good for grazing. There was ample fishing, and the seals and walruses would provide valuable food and goods, particularly ivory, which came from the tusks of the walrus. 
Eric would spend three years in Greenland, exploring and scouting the lands. Then, in 985, with his exile complete, he would return to Iceland. There he told the tales of the promise of Greenland. It seems Eric understood the value of a little marketing. Who wants to go to Iceland when Greenland is just over the horizon? Within a year, Eric would set out for Greenland, his family, including Leif, with him. He would have 25 ships and more than 500 settlers with him, the promise of a new life ahead of them. As we have said, the 700-plus mile voyage to Greenland was difficult. Of the 25 ships, only 14 or 15 reached their destination. The others were lost or returned to Iceland. Eric established two colonies on the southwest tip of Greenland, at the head of long fjords. They were called, quite cleverly, the Eastern Settlement and the Western Settlement. Eric settled into an estate called Bertali, along to Noliafik Fjord, which at the time was called, appropriately enough, Eric's Fjord. The lands along the coast were habitable about 20 to 30 miles inland, and they were virgin lands, unspoiled by overplanting and overgrazing. So Eric the Red had established his colony. We will get back to the man's fate, as well as that of the colonies, later. But for now, let us turn our attention to his son, Leif. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Leif Erikson was born about 970. When he was eight years old, he moved in with a teacher, a German named Thierker. Thierker had been captured by Eric. He is sometimes described as a slave, other times not. Either way, he would have a tremendous impact on Leif, who would refer to the man as a foster father. Thierker would school young Leif in the ways of the world, teaching him how to write ruins and speak Russian and Celtic. He would also arrange for proper tutors to instruct Leif in the arts of sailing, hunting, and fishing, as well as combat. At the age of 12, Leif would return to his father's home, just as Eric was being banished from Iceland. Thus, Leif accompanied his father west, spending three years living a difficult life. But he would also learn from one of the best, his father. He would become an expert navigator, learn how to survive in the most trying and difficult of situations, and understand how to lead men. According to the sagas, Leif grew into a resourceful, intelligent, wise, and magnanimous young man, minus the temper of his father. Of course, that's how heroes are supposed to be, so you just never know about that. In 994, Leif was assigned a task by his father. He was to sail to Norway, where he would bring gifts and greetings to King Olaf Tryggvason. Eric wanted to crow to the world about his accomplishments, and his 24-year-old son would be the perfect envoy. 
It should be understood that this is no simple journey. Leif was headed to Norway, about 1,800 miles away. This was a dangerous mission, but one that could bring him renown. Leif would set sail for Norway with a crew of 15 men, including his German teacher, Thierker. It is not known his exact route. I'm guessing there was a stop in Iceland, but before reaching Norway, Leif would first arrive at the Hebrides, a group of islands off the western coast of Scotland, controlled by the Vikings. There he met a young woman named Thorgunna, the daughter of the island's lord. The two would strike up a relationship, and she would become pregnant. Thorgunna reportedly wanted to go with Leif to Norway, but he wouldn't let her for fear that her family would be angry and do them violence. And as we have seen, the Vikings are pretty good at the whole violence thing. So Leif would sail away without Thorgunna and his unborn child. But stick a pin in that subject, and we will get back to the woman and her child a little later in the story. Leif arrived in Norway at the city of Nidaros, now Trondheim, and would meet the island's ruler, King Olaf Tryggvason. Things appeared to have gone well. Olaf was impressed by Leif's journey, the gifts he had brought, and the tales he told of Greenland. Olaf would ask Leif and his men to spend the winter at his court, which was a great honor. But Olaf would have something else he would ask of Leif, a request that would have significant consequences to the people of Greenland. The previous year, Olaf had converted to a new religion, Christianity. He had devoted himself to his new god, and he wanted Leif and his men to not only join the faith, but to bring Christianity to Greenland. Most people listening to this podcast probably have at least a little knowledge about the Norse gods, Thor and Odin and Loki and Freya, etc., etc. I'm not going to go into the pantheon here, but I do want to talk a little bit about the incorporation of Christianity into Norse spirituality. With the coming of Christianity, many Norse, including Leif, didn't just switch from the Norse gods to the Christian god overnight. For many, it was a gradual process. Many people, including Leif, sort of said, hey, what's one more god in the pantheon? And thus Christianity was often at times gradually integrated into Norse life, a process that would eventually find Christianity overtake the Norse gods. But as we have said, Leif was not a fervent believer like King Olaf. But the king was a powerful man, and he wasn't afraid to punish non-believers. So Leif and his men said, better safe than sorry, and they would be baptized into the Christian faith. When the ship would sail for Greenland in spring, Leif would bring a priest with him, and he promised Olaf that he would spread the word of Christ in his homeland. When Leif returned to Greenland, his father, Eric, was not thrilled about the new Christian religion or the priest who had come with his son. Eric was an old-school Viking, and he didn't like or believe in the new priest or his god. But Leif's mother would go all in on the new Christian religion. Through her efforts, she would get the first church in Greenland built, around 1,000. Her husband would approve of the church's construction, but only grudgingly. Leif would keep his word to King Olaf and travel around Greenland with the priests, spreading the word of Jesus. Most people were like Leif. They found it easier to accept the new religion, usually alongside their current gods, than to risk angering the higher-ups. Many probably just nodded and smiled and added a new god to their list of prayers. For Leif, it was a solid start, and he and the priest agreed they had done the job they had set out to do. So, now we find that Leif is a young man who has shown his mettle as a sailor and a leader. What to do next? Well, before we follow Leif's next step, we need to go back to the year 986 to set the stage for the next chapter of our tale. In that year, a man named Bjarni Haraldsson had sailed from Iceland bound for Greenland, but a storm blew him off course, and he was caught up in the fog and couldn't navigate, and that is when he spotted land, but it wasn't Greenland. It was a land choked with trees, a place he would call Markland, which meant forest land. He had then gone north and come upon another great landmass, 
this one barren and full of rock and ice. He had then gone east and found Greenland, before sailing south along the coast to reach the Viking settlements. Bjarni and his men had not set foot on any of the new lands. Let's remember the makeup of Greenland and Iceland at this time. Greenland has no trees, and Iceland is mostly deforested, so timber is an immensely valuable commodity. As Leif grew older, he never forgot the stories of Bjarni Haraldsson, and over the years he would quiz the man at length about his journey. Finally, Leif decided to find Markland. Like his father, he could become a great leader and explorer, and gain immense wealth, not to mention aid the colony. Leif Erikson's expedition consisted of one ship and 35 men, including his German teacher, Thierker. They would set sail in 1,000. One person who would not go with Leif was his father, Erik. The man had initially agreed to go with his son, but on the day they were to depart, Erik was thrown from his horse, and he badly injured his foot. Erik took the accident as an omen of bad luck, and he begged off the voyage. So, following the route of Bjarni Haraldsson, only in reverse, Leif went north, along the coast of Greenland, before heading west into the open sea. I want to let you know that, if you want, you can look at a map of Leif's journey on explorerspodcast.com. So Leif and his ship went west, and they would eventually sight land, a desolate and rocky place that he dubbed Helluland, which translates into flat rock land or stone land. The place was just as Leif had expected after listening to Bjarni's stories. Helluland is modern-day Baffin Island, a large, remote, rocky island that lies mostly above the Arctic Circle. But Baffin Island is huge, the fifth largest island in the world, in fact, so we don't know exactly where Eric landed. His trip from the Greenland coast to Baffin Island probably covered anywhere from 350 to 450 miles, but that is just a rough guess. Helluland, or Baffin Island, was as inhospitable as one could imagine, so Leif and his ship turned south, traveling hundreds of miles down the coast, eventually reaching a heavily forested region. He had found Markland, which is the eastern coast of Labrador in Canada. Leif would continue southeast along the coast of Labrador, traveling roughly 700 miles before the coast turned southwest and went into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But here the island of Newfoundland comes into view. Eric and his ship would head to the northern tip of the island. Here, the small expedition found a mild climate and the waters teeming with salmon. With the cold approaching, Leif decided that this would be an ideal spot to weather the winter. The location was named Leif's Camp. Today it is known as Lanso Meadows. Leif Erikson didn't realize it at the time, but as he set up his settlement, he was making history. Lanso Meadows would become the first European settlement in North America. And while there were probably other ships blown to these regions, it is Leif Erikson who is given the credit as the first European to set foot in North America. Eric and his men would explore the region around the camp. They determined the lands to be excellent for a settlement. The weather was milder than in Greenland, and cattle would thrive in the grasslands. Also, timber was plentiful, as were fish, and particularly salmon. They also found grapes, and thus the area was dubbed Vinland, or Wineland. At least that is what many speculate. It's certainly possible that the interpretation is true, but there are theories that Vinland referred to an area further south, or that the Vin in Vinland should be interpreted as pasture, thus pasture land, which would not be inaccurate. Whatever is true, it really doesn't matter. Leif had found his lands of timber and grapes, and in the spring the men would load the ships with said items and head back for Greenland. On the return trip, Leif and his men would rescue the crew of a damaged ship, stranded on a small rocky island. The incident would bestow on Leif the nickname Leif the Lucky. Thus, he returned to Greenland a hero. The timber and grapes not only proved to everyone that his tale was true, but the cargo made him a wealthy man. 
Leif no doubt intended on returning to his newly discovered lands, but circumstances would alter his plans. In 1003, the Greenland colony was thriving, and new settlers were arriving every year. However, a group of colonists who had arrived the previous year had brought a sickness with them that would sweep through the settlements. Hundreds would die, including the founder of the colony, Eric the Red. With his father's death, Leif's days as an adventurer were over. He was a ruler now, taking over as the chieftain of the colony. More trips to Vinland would be organized, but Leif would not lead them. What comes next are stories that are pretty much lifted from the Icelandic sagas. There is no real proof any of them happen, but it is logical that the Greenlanders would return to the new lands, and the sagas do recount Leif's expedition, so there are likely nuggets of truth in what they say about the later journeys. The first expedition was sent in 1004 and led by Leif's brother Thorvald. He would return to Vinland with a single ship and 30 men. They would explore the area, but it wouldn't take long for the Vikings to have their first encounters with the native peoples, whom the Vikings called Skraelings. As with so many encounters between Europeans and native peoples, a fight would break out. Thorvald would die while fighting the Indians, likely Algonquins. The expedition lasted only one or two winters in the area before returning home, bringing back timber and grapes. But Skraelings or not, the lure of wealth was too much. Greenland needed timber, and in 1009, another expedition was sent to the new land. This one was larger, although the numbers you get vary. I have read anywhere from 60 to 250 settlers took part, including women. The leader was Thorfinn Karselfni. He had married Gudrid, the widow of Leif's brother Thorvald, who had been killed earlier in Vinland. It is believed that the expedition under Thorfinn arrived at Eric's camp in Vinland, but moved to a new location to establish their settlement. Where they did this is a great mystery, perhaps on the other side of Newfoundland or somewhere else in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. One of the sagas calls their settlement Stromsfjord, but that really doesn't help us. Archaeologists may eventually uncover other Viking settlements. The use of infrared satellite technology and high-res aerial photography has revealed some potential ancient sites, but it will take time to excavate them, so we'll just have to hold our breath with regard to that. The expedition had initially developed good relations with the natives, but it took one mistake to ignite a conflict, and the two sides would soon be at war with each other. Eventually, Thorfinn decided that the small settlement just couldn't survive in a constant state of conflict, and they abandoned it and returned to Greenland. During this time in Vinland, Thorfinn's wife Gudrid would have a baby, Snurri, perhaps the first European born in the Americas. The final voyage to Vinland was conducted by Leif's sister, Freydis, who led a group of about 75 men and women to Lanzo Meadows. It would end up badly when Freydis would turn on her business partners. She and her men would slaughter more than 30 men, as well as five women. Freydis would kill the women herself when her men refused to do the deed. After Freydis's ill-fated journey, there are no recorded attempts to permanently settle in Vinland or Markland. Small groups of settlers simply could not survive due to the hostilities with the native peoples. But it is likely that the Greenlanders made trips to Markland and Vinland to harvest timber or gather other items of value, such as grapes. Leif Erikson would remain as ruler of Greenland until his death, which was between 1019 and 1025. The exact year isn't known. It is assumed that Leif married at some point in his life, as Thorkel Leifson would become the chief of Greenland, inheriting the role from his father. As a note, Leif would have a son by the woman Thorgunna. Remember her from the Hebrides Islands in 995? Well, the woman and son would eventually come to Greenland. Leif did not marry the woman, but he did recognize the son, whose name was Thorgils. I've read various accounts of the two. One version has them both dying shortly after arriving in Greenland. 
but the more popular version has them arriving in Greenland, but Thorgils never becoming popular with the people, despite being the son of Leif. Nothing else is really said of the two. And thus wraps up the lives of Leif Erikson and his father, Eric the Red. The two are the most famous of the Viking explorers of the age. Eric settled Greenland while Leif would be the first European to set foot in North America and establish the first settlement. It was a pretty remarkable job by father and son. Some postscript on the two men and the lands they colonized. The colony of Greenland would flourish for several hundred years, growing to a population of about 5,000. But life in Greenland was difficult. The settlers had established a society marrying the world of Norway and Iceland, with farming and herding. But Greenland was a fragile place for such a culture. As the centuries passed, the world would move from a time of relative warmth to what was called the mini-ice age. This would threaten the colony's food supply, as the summers got cooler and the migration patterns of seals and other critical food sources changed. Also, the main export of the Greenlanders was ivory. It was a lucrative product, and for about 200 years, it was a cash cow for the Greenland economy. Ships would arrive from Iceland to acquire the ivory, which the Greenlanders got from the tusks of walruses, as well as narwhals. In turn, they would bring goods that the island desperately needed. But in between the years of 1200 and 1400, things gradually changed. The ivory trade from Africa was opened up, giving buyers in Europe an easier and cheaper alternative. And when the bubonic plague swept through Europe in the 1300s, the market for luxury goods such as ivory dwindled. The simple fact is that Greenland ended up with nothing to export. Food was becoming scarcer and scarcer, imports were drying up, and the population was becoming weak and vulnerable. Settlements were gradually abandoned. At that point, most people probably just left when it became obvious that they could not sustain themselves. But if anyone had stayed, they would have just died out, or been killed, or absorbed by the native peoples. The last recorded event in North Greenland was in 1408, a wedding. After that, people just stopped going to the island. In 1721, Denmark sent an expedition to Greenland to see if any of the settlements still existed, but they would find no one. Like a small ship on a great ocean, history almost swallowed Leif Erikson. The Icelandic sagas talk about his epic journey, but there was no proof that Leif and the Vikings had actually reached the shores of America. In the centuries before and after Christopher Columbus had come to the Americas, there were stories of Leif's world, the odd map marking a land in the northwest, or a mention in some book, not to mention the sagas. But there was no proof, just rumors and legends. Then, in 1960, a pair of Norwegians, the husband and wife team of explorer Helga Ingstad and archaeologist Anne Stein Ingstad, were led by a local fisherman named George Decker to a small group of mounds near the village of Lanso Meadows in Newfoundland, mounds the locals took to be an old Indian camp. But the Ingstads dove deeper. Between 1961 and 1968, they would conduct seven excavations of the site, determining it to be of Norse origin. The couple found the remains of eight buildings, including an iron smithy, a boat repair area, a carpentry shop, as well as living quarters. Norse items were discovered in the excavations, including a bronze fastening pin, an oil lamp, and a bone knitting needle. The site likely could have sustained no more than 150 or 160 people, so this may not have been the largest Norse settlement. The location on the northern tip of Newfoundland made it a perfect way station, a place to repair a ship or gather supplies before heading to Greenland or further south or west to explore. Whether any other settlements were established is speculation. Ultimately, the discovery of Lanso Meadows proved that the Vikings had come to America 500 years before Christopher Columbus. Because of this, it seems that the world has embraced Leif Erikson over his father, Eric the Red. And that's understandable. Remember, Eric was a killer. 
His big accomplishment was that he had founded the colony of Greenland. Not the sexiest thing. Leif, on the other hand, was the first man to come to the Americas. He had founded the first settlement. Those are exciting things. And thus Leif has been held up by many as a source of Scandinavian pride, particularly among those with Norwegian descent. Today there are memorials and statues honoring Leif Erikson all over the place, especially in the upper Midwest, which has a large population with Norwegian ancestry. There are statues in Boston, Milwaukee, Seattle, St. Paul, and Duluth. Also, the United States celebrates Leif Erikson Day on October 9th every year. So that is our tale, or maybe saga is a better term, the saga of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. In some ways, the voyages of these men is mind-boggling. They traveled hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles, often in open sea and in small ships. It is as daring and as bold as you can get. Well done, gentlemen. I recommend going to explorespodcast.com to see maps and photos, plus links to some of our podcast sources, including the Icelandic sagas. I hope you enjoyed listening to the saga of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.